Hi there, I'm Dr. Vivian Lowe, and you're on VLMD Rounds, a podcast on medical science and tools to optimize your health. Now, before I start, I just want to remind you that I do some live stream events, and you can find the schedule for that on my website, VivianLowMD.com. V Y V Y A N E L O H M D.com. And these are sessions where people drop in and they ask me questions or they tell me what they want to hear about on these episodes. And I've certainly had a lot of fun with them. I hope you'll show up at one of them. It was at my very first live stream event that Mr. Blue, you requested an episode on fructose, which I did a few episodes ago. But you had actually requested an episode on fructose and uric acid. I didn't forget, but I just thought it was a lot to squeeze into one episode. So today I am going to fulfill the second half of that request. We will be talking about uric acid. Let's go. We'll start with nitrogenous bases. What are nitrogenous bases? If you remember your DNA and your DNA is made up of a sugar phosphate backbone on two strands. And then we have these bases that will base pair with each other um, on the different strands, right? And in humans, we have four bases in um, the DNA and these are adenine, guanine, thymine, and cytosine. So the adenine and thymine, sorry, the adenine always binds to thymine. The cytosine always binds to guanine, and those are the rules of base pairing. But in terms of the family of bases that they come from, actually adenine and guanine belong to the purine family, and then thymine and cytosine belong to the pyrimidine family. And these bases obviously are really important as you saw for DNA, for RNA, but especially adenine and guanine, they are also involved in the formation of ATP and GTP. So they are energy carriers as well in our body and they also act as signaling molecules. So, you know, I'm, I'm partial to them. It's, it's like when you have kids and all your kids are lovely, but you're partial to some of them or one of them, right? And I think all the bases are great, but the purines, I think, are more interesting, shall we say? than the pyrimidines, at least in my opinion. So that's my bias there. So today we're gonna to focus on the purines, the adenine and the guanine. Now, when we talk about these um, compounds, we can make them from scratch in our body and that would be called de novo synthesis. So making it from new, from scratch, right? The problem with that is that you know, doing de novo synthesis uh, would consume a lot of resources in terms of energy 
and other compounds. So we need proteins uh, for that. We need five ATPs, right, to make those purines from scratch. So it's a very costly process for the cell. So an easier way to do this and to get those purines would be the salvage pathway. And the salvage pathway is essentially, you know, recycling from cells that have broken up, that um, have died. So as part of the cleanup, we can salvage uh, these bases and reuse them, right? So that's a good thing. We like recycling. Now, in terms of breaking down these purines, uh, there's a specific catabolic pathway that we're going to be talking about. So if we're going to start from um, adenine uh, AMP monophosphate and guanine monophosphate GMP, AMP and GMP. And I'm going to take you through the pathway for their breakdown. And you'll hear a lot of names thrown at you. I don't want you to be overwhelmed. By the end of this episode, I think you'll be comfortable and familiar with them. But I just, you know, I'm going to take you down this pathway and we'll talk about why it's important as we go on into the episode. All right. So we're going to start, as I said, with AMP, adenine monophosphate, and GMP, guanine monophosphate, and we can enzymatically break down those products and we can form something called inosine monophosphate. Inosine is spelled I-N-O-S-I-N-E. And we'll just call it IMP, all right? And then we can take IMP and, you know, use an enzyme to break it down further into inosine. And inosine is also a purine. Okay, so we went from adenine and guanine monophosphates and eventually we got to inosine. Now we can use an enzyme to act upon inosine and we will make the compound hypoxanthine and then further break it down to xanthine. And now with xanthine, we can use an enzyme called xanthine oxidase and we end up with uric acid. So as you can see, uric acid belongs to the lineage of purines, right? It belongs to the house of purines as opposed to the house of pyrimidines, okay? And it is the end product in humans for purine breakdown or purine catabolism. Okay, so like I said, we started with AMP, GMP, broke it down to IMP, and then further broke it down to inosine, which is what the I stands for, and that's broken down to hypoxanthine and xanthine, and eventually we make uric acid. In other animals, other mammals, there is a further enzyme called uricase. Actually, there are further enzymes, uh, but if we're talking mammals, then there's uricase. And uricase can actually convert the uric acid into a protein called allantoin. 
Okay, so there's one more step in other mammals, but the big apes and humans don't have that last step in the breakdown of purines. In the case of humans, we actually have the gene for this. The problem is that it's not functional, so we don't make the protein to actually do that breakdown step. Okay, so we basically now will just end up with uric acid. But other mammals, as I said, can take that uric acid, which, you know, I'm sure you've heard, can be quite inflammatory, and process it even further and make allantoin. And allantoin is harmless and neutral, and then we can just get rid of that and pee it out. Okay, so that's one of the first things that you have to remember that we don't have uricase and so we can't break the uric acid down further through enzymatic action. So what's the significance of this? I mean, why, why do we care? And, you know, what's the big deal about how this uric acid is made? Well, you know, basically our bodies are really smart and we do things for a reason. And, you know, making uric acid this way is a way to break down the purines, but it's another way also to help the cell out in times of stress, in times of hypoxia, for example. Okay, so let's take the example of a muscle cell. Let's imagine you've gone to the gym and you've been doing your resistance training. Maybe you did some metabolic conditioning that day too. You worked yourself hard, right? And as a result of that, the muscle cells are consuming a lot of ATP and they've used up quite a lot of ATP. And now the ATP levels in your muscle cells drop. Well, that's not a good thing because you're not done with your workout yet. You still have another 20 minutes to go. So we need some ATP fast, right? So now when we break down ATP, then we use the energy stored in one of the phosphate bonds, right? And that's used as energy to fuel whatever activities the cell needs to do. And we're left with ADP. So we have, we started with ATP and we used one of the phosphate groups and now we have ADP left. So when you've been working your muscle cells hard, we've been consuming the ATP, we get an accumulation of ADPs from the usage of those ATPs. Okay. All right. But we need ATPs right? Who cares that we have a lot of ADPs? Well, as I said, the cell's pretty smart. Your body's very smart. And so it figures, hey, you know, we can use those ADPs. And this is what we'll do. So if you take two ADP molecules, right? And I'm just going to hold it up here, like with my fingers. And each hand, I'm holding up two fingers, right? And the two fingers each represent uh, the phosphate. So we have two on one hand and two on the other hand because we have two ADPs here. Now, what if we took one of the phosphate groups from one of the ADPs and donated it 
to the other ADP, okay? And so now one of the ADPs gets a phosphate group and becomes ATP. So now I have three fingers on my left hand. And then we have, we are, since we donated one phosphate group, that ADP now is AMP, right? And I'm holding one finger up on my right hand, okay? So you can see that we can generate some ATP that way just by moving the phosphate groups from one ADP molecule to another, and then we have ATP on that molecule. But because we donated one phosphate group, we are now left with A. I was I almost gave you the finger. If I had turned it around, it would have been giving you the finger. But no, now we're left with ATP and AMP. Okay, and you know we have this reaction, and it can go both ways. We can take ATP and AMP and convert it back to two molecules of ADP, right? So it's reversible. However, it's not to your muscle cells advantage to accumulate more ADP, right? You're burning off, you're using off those ATPs, you're accumulating ADPs as it is. Why would you want to make more? No, what you really need would be the ATPs and you need to make sure that we drive the reaction forward in that direction, converting the ADPs into AMP and ATP. All right, so how are we gonna do that? Well, one thing you don't want to do is let the ATP and the AMP accumulate, okay? Because then it's just going to, you know, if we start accumulating those molecules, we're just gonna drive the reaction back towards the opposite direction and just form more ADPs again. Well, the ATPs are easy to deal with because we're just gonna use them. We're still in our workout, okay? The AMPs though, what are we gonna do with the AMPs? Gotta get rid of them and keep that reaction going forward so that we take all the ADPs that we have and make more AMPs and ATPs. Well, we can take the AMP and how about we convert it to IMP, remember the purine uh, metabolic uh, pathway to break down the purines? So we take the AMP, right? And we're gonna break it down and make IMP and then we can make inosine and then we can make hypoxanthine and then we can make xanthine and then we make uric acid, right? So we have now removed the AMP and this will help continue to drive the reaction forward so that these ADP molecules will continue to form AMP and ATP. And that's one way that you can salvage some ATP out of the situation and help the cell out, right? Because that's ultimately what we need. Your, your cell is very good at sensing energy levels and when it's low and the ATPs are going down, it decides that it's gonna do this, right? To generate more ATPs. And this is very helpful in your muscle cell when you're working hard. It's also very helpful in situations of hypoxia, for example. And we've known, for example, that people who live at high altitudes in hypoxic environments, they actually have more uric acid in their blood, right? because we are, again, driving that reaction forward 
and forming more uric acid. There's also another reason we're going to talk about that soon. Okay, so there is this uh, drive to kind of help the cell out and give it some energy in a situation of low energy. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Because I just gave you an example from the muscle cell. But if you remember a few episodes back when I was talking about fructose, right? Remember what happened with fructose? Well, fructose, when it enters the cell and is tagged with a phosphate group by an enzyme called fructokinase or the Freddy enzyme, right? There is no feedback loop there. And so, you know, there's a lot of quick entry of this fructose into the cell in the liver. And then we tag those fructose molecules with phosphate groups. Where do you think the phosphate groups come from? They come from ATP. So if we are now using up all this ATP and just tagging the flood of fructose molecules that are coming in, right? What happens? We get a very quick depletion of ATP levels in the cell. Uh-oh, now what are we going to do, right? Well, just like in the muscle cell, guess what? Purine catabolism to the rescue. So we can take the AMP uh, that has been accumulating, right, and the ADPs, and we can drive the reaction towards forming IMP and inosine, and then hypoxanthine, and then xanthine, and then uric acid, right? We are driving that reaction so that we keep making more ATP as much as possible to keep up with this demand because of the flood of phosphate molecule, uh, fructose molecules coming in and being tagged with phosphate groups, right? So essentially, you can see that it's the same situation here. When there's a depletion of energy in the cell, ATP levels drop, then we kind of prioritize this purine catabolism or breakdown pathway, and we end up with uric acid. Now, you know, basically, anytime you talk about uric acid, everybody knows that it's bad news, okay? Sort of like calling in the mafia, right? Bad news when uric acid shows up because uric acid causes a lot of damage, causes a lot of inflammation, and um, it's been well associated with inflammatory conditions. So, for example, it can stimulate you know, um, macrophages to be in a more inflammatory or M1 state. Uh, it can, um, you know, basically decrease the um, nitric oxide in your blood vessels. And nitric oxide is very good at helping your blood vessels relax and vasodilate. But if we don't have a lot of the nitric oxide effect because of uric acid, then what happens? We don't get that nice relaxation of the blood vessels and we actually have a rise in our blood pressure. Okay, so it's been associated with hypertension. 
it's been associated with obesity, with metabolic syndrome, with heart disease, with renal disease. So uric acid is bad news, right? And it's especially bad news for people who have gout. Okay, I'm sure most of you have heard of gout. Uric acid is actually not very soluble at all in water, and it mostly exists in your blood in the form of urate, okay, which is the salt of uric acid. It's the same thing, but it's mostly in the form of urate in the blood. And when you have a lot of these uh, of this urate around in your blood, uh, it's not highly soluble, so it has this tendency to crystallize out of solution, which is not a good thing. And when it crystallizes out in your joints, for example, it can cause a huge inflammatory reaction. And that's when people have their gout attacks and it is extremely painful, okay? So, you know, once we have this excessive crystallization out and we can crystallize it in stones, uh, in, in kidney stones as well. So as you can see, these urate crystals cause a lot of problems. So, you know, when you see someone with high levels of uric acid in their blood, you know, you kind of are on the lookout for gout. However, not everyone with high uric acid levels has gout, right? So it seems that there are some people who are predisposed to it and other people can have high levels of uric acid and never experience uh, gout at all. So uric acid, once it's formed, okay, your body gets rid of it in two ways. Two thirds of it is going to be excreted in the kidneys and then about a third of it in the intestines. Okay, so the majority is gonna be cleared by the kidneys. Now in the kidneys, you filter it out and then you secrete it in the proximal tubules, it's just a part of the kidneys, but we also reabsorb some of it back. In fact, we reabsorb most of it back. We reabsorb 90% of what we've just secreted, okay? So that we actually only have about 10% that ends up in the urine and 90% is reabsorbed back into the body. What the heck? Why are we doing that? Didn't we just say that uric acid is bad news? So why would your body want to reabsorb the stuff that they were trying to get rid of anyway? It kind of reminds me um, when I was a med student and I did a medical elective in, um, in Brazil. And we were in the Amazon. My friend Carmen and I were in the Amazon. And one weekend we got out and did a jungle trip with a guide. And we got into one of these canoes. We were paddling on the Amazon River, right? It was late at night. And there were these lights in the distance. And they were just kind of a lot of them in the water. And the guide said, those are alligator eyes. And I was like, whoa alligator eyes and then i'm like carm if those are alligator eyes why are we rowing towards the alligators shouldn't we be rowing away from them right 
you know? And the guy was like, no, 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 you want to see these? No, we didn't. But anyway, um, my whole point is, if something's bad news, why do you want to go to, why do you want to have more of it? You want to get rid of it, right? You don't want to row towards the alligators. You want to get away from it. You don't want to reabsorb more uric acid. You want to dump it out as much as you can. So why is your body doing this? Well, we're not 100% sure, but it is believed that, well, it's got to be doing some good to your body. And millions of years ago, when we lost the ability to make uricase, that enzyme that converts uric acid to allantoin, right? That was about the time that we lost the ability to make our own vitamin C in our bodies, okay? So most animals can make their own vitamin C. And I think guinea pigs can't. And, you know, there's probably one or two others that can't. And humans can't make their own uh, vitamin C. So around the time that we lost the ability to make our own vitamin C, well, as you can imagine, vitamin C is a great antioxidant, right? Well, around that time, we think, is when we also lost the ability to make this uricase uh, enzyme that would convert the uric acid into allantoin. And the reason for this may surprise you. The reason is that uric acid is actually a very potent antioxidant. Did you fall off your chair? It's a very potent antioxidant. And that has been well known for a very long time. And it is believed that 60, some people even say up to 85% of the antioxidant uh, capacity in your body is from uric acid. Okay? We have a lot more uric acid in our blood than ascorbic acid or vitamin C. And so it's much more uh, important in antioxidant activity than the vitamin C. The average level of uric acid in your blood for a man would be around 7 milligrams per deciliter, for a woman around 6 milligrams per deciliter. And this is way higher than most mammals, right? Remember those other mammals, they have that uricase uh, enzyme. And so they're getting rid of the uric acid by forming allantoin. So their uric acid levels are like, uh, probably like two milligrams per deciliter. And we're at seven or six milligrams. So that's way higher, right? But it's giving us this antioxidant effect. And when we lost the ability to make our own vitamin C, well, to make up for it, right, we got rid of the uricase enzyme so that we would have more uric acid around to kind of boost the antioxidant capacity in our bodies, right? So that's the thinking of why we lost that enzyme. Now, I said that the uric acid is secreted and gotten rid of in the kidneys, and it's done so through these transport proteins, right? And there, there are many of them that will transport um, 
and, and aid in the secretion of uric acid out of the tubules, okay? And it's felt that a dysfunction or some genetic variance in these transporters would be the major factor in human hyperuricemia, okay? And the reason that humans may have high levels of uric acid in those people who maybe are more prone to gout, right? So an example here is one of these proteins is called um, the ABCG2 um, protein transporter for urate, and that helps actually urate secretion in the kidneys. Now, if there's a loss of that transporter, then we're going to have actually more accumulation of urate in the blood, and therefore the uric acid levels will rise in those patients. And it's felt that most gout patients uh, have some disposition towards decreased ability to excrete urate. Okay. Now you always hear, and I've certainly always heard, oh, you have to eat, you know, foods that are low in purines. I can't think of foods that are low in purines uh, specifically, but they always say, you know, you don't want to eat foods that are rich in protein. I'm like, well, we need protein. Why would your body do that to you, right? And it turns out it's really mostly from this uh, dysfunction in some of these transporter proteins in the kidneys that predisposes people to high levels of uric acid and then um, gout. And not so much in the diet, although overconsumption of fructose, as you know, could actually be one of those factors, dietary factors, that can lead to hyperuricemia. So again, no overconsumption of fructose. And in terms of, you know, you've also often heard that, you know, if you drink alcohol, that can also increase your risk of gout. Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit, but especially so with beer. So if there's an alcohol that you should really give up, if you're prone to gout attacks, that would be beer. But anyway, you should give up alcohol because it's a class one carcinogen. And I'll do an episode on that another time. All right. But yeah, avoid too much fructose. And if you are still going to drink alcohol, but you have gout, you probably want to cut out the beer. Okay, let's go back to talking about uric acid now as an antioxidant. Now, again, I want to emphasize this because you always hear about how inflammatory uric acid is. But it turns out that it's really good as a scavenger for reactive oxygen species, right? These are free radicals. These are compounds that have unpaired electrons in their orbits that cause them to be very reactive and volatile, right, and unstable, and they can damage a lot of tissues. And uric acid can actually help to scavenge those free radicals, right? And therefore cause less damage in your body. Okay, so let me just go to this. Uh, 
article that I found completely fascinating. And this one was a Japanese article. Let me get the names. Mikami and Sorimachi from 2017. And this is Physiologic Research, which is the journal. Okay. And here what they did, um, I'm just going to actually see if I can read tiny letters here from uh, their paper where they said, you know, our previous findings where plasma uric acid concentration in human subjects changed after oral administration of uricosuric drug, so a drug that makes you pee out the uric acid and drops the uric acid level in your body, right? So the plasma uric acid concentration in human subjects changed after giving them this drug or uric acid um, precursor, the IMP, right? So this would actually increase uric acid, showed that um, plasma trap levels, a way of measuring antioxidant uh, ability, had a significantly positive co correlation with that of plasma uric acid. So they're saying that when they tested the antioxidant capacity of blood, it correlated with the uric acid levels. So the higher the uric acid levels, the more antioxidant capacity, and the lower, the less. And then this particular study, they actually showed that in liver cells. And what they did was they took mice. Now mice make uricase, right? They have that enzyme that converts uric acid to allantoin. But what they did was that they had a control group that was just fed regular stuff. And then they had the study group of mice that were given allopurinol in the food as well. So the allopurinol blocks the xanthine oxidase enzyme that converts xanthine to uric acid, right? So now we are not allowing uric acid to be formed because we're giving a, a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, right? So the mice that had the allopurinol, um, they actually had much less antioxidant uh, capacity in their liver cells as compared to the control mice, right? because their uric acid levels were also a lot lower. And then this was the thing in the study that kind of blew my mind a little bit. Remember, we don't have uricase. And if we don't have uricase, then we don't make allantoin, right? That's what I thought. Because like everywhere, like you have the enzyme to make allantone, so you're stuck with uric acid. Then I read this. Uh, it says, when uric acid reacts with reactive oxygen species as an antioxidant, uric acid is further metabolized to allantoin non-enzymatically. This is a non-enzymatic reaction. It's just acting as an antioxidant and reacts with re reactive oxygen species. And as a result of that reaction, it forms allantoin. So patients with rheumatism and Down syndrome have significantly higher concentrations of serum, uh, uh, serum 
or plasma allantoin because reactive oxygen production is increased in these conditions. And furthermore, individuals performing intense exercise show an increase of plasma allantoin concentration because intense exercise results in increased reactive oxygen species formation. That's kind of mind-blowing to me because we don't have the enzyme to make allantoin, but if you do intense physical activity, right, you generate a lot of reactive oxygen species and then the uric acid mops it up and as part of that antioxidant effect, you make allantoin. So that was something I discovered that kind of blew my mind away. I know, sometimes when I have these moments, I just go, wow, right? Because, yeah, our bodies are pretty special. Anyway, I got lost a little bit. But back to more exciting things about the antioxidant abilities of uric acid. Because it gets even more exciting. It's a scavenger of those free radicals, and some of these free radicals are also peroxynitrite, the reactive nitrogen species, right? And because it scavenges these reactive nitrogen species, it also protects the blood-brain barrier and inhibits uh, central nervous system inflammation, CNS inflammation. And what they found was that it's actually very helpful in um, decreasing encephalomyelitis in mouse model of multiple sclerosis. Yes, uric acid, protective against multiple sclerosis. Okay, that was a big one for me. And turns out that they think that gout and multiple sclerosis are mutually exclusive. Because you have gout, you have high uric acid levels, and then, well, it's protective against multiple sclerosis, right? If you have multiple sclerosis, right, then you're not likely to have gout because your uric acid levels are low. That's why you end up with multiple sclerosis. And, you know, then you're not likely to have gout. So they did a study where this was in humans, uh, with chronic multiple sclerosis. And they took these patients, and guess what they did? They, give, they gave uric acid precursors. So what would these be? IMP or inosine. Remember, before we get to uric acid, we had the IMP, we had the inosine, the inosine became hypoxanthine, then xanthine, then uric acid, right? We gave one of those precursors, let's say we gave inosine. So they gave inosine to people with chronic multiple sclerosis and they dropped their serum uric acid levels from, sorry, they increased, increased, yes, their serum uric acid levels from four to nine milligrams per deciliter. So it works, right? You give them the inosine, you give them the precursor and you make more uric acid. So your levels of uric acid go from low four to 
pretty good, nine milligrams per deciliter. And guess what? Their symptoms decrease. They got better. They didn't have any relapses in the whole year that they were followed. That was pretty mind-blowing, right? That you could give a uric acid precursor to stimulate more uric acid formation to decrease symptoms in patients with multiple sclerosis. And there's suggestion that it may be helpful in other conditions of hypoxia to the brain, ischemic strokes, for example, as well, and other neurodegenerative disorders such as, such as, such as Parkinson's. Parkinson's. So Parkinson's is a degeneration of the dopaminergic neurons in a part of the brain called the substantia nigra. And I'm sure, you know, you've encountered patients or people who have Parkinson's or you've seen them on TV or something, and they have slow movements. They tend to have a flat sort of expression on their faces. They have a resting tremor and they also have cognitive impairment and it's believed that they're you know having these symptoms part of it is due to increased oxidative stress and uh, mitochondrial dysfunction in the brain and they've noticed that decreased serum uric acid levels are associated with disease progression and when they've done population studies they found that People with higher serum uric acid levels had reduced incidence of Parkinson's over the like almost 10 years that they followed those people. And also in Parkinson's patients, decreased serum uric acid was correlated with you know poor cognitive exams. So the lower the serum uric acid levels were the worst they did on those cognitive exams. And there's even some suggestion that it may be linked to Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's disease, you know, we see oxidative stress and damage by lipid peroxidation in the brain. And we find that, you know, there, uh, people with Alzheimer's are also more likely to have low levels of serum uric acid and in their blood, right? And, you know, their thinking is, what if we could, like those multiple sclerosis patients, give them some uric acid precursor like inosine? What if we gave them inosine and maybe combined it with ascorbic acid and gave them some huge, you know, antioxidant boost? Uh, would that help their symptoms, right? Now, I'm not saying that this is causative for Parkinson's or for Alzheimer's. Certainly, you know, those are, those are big topics and someone did request a, uh, an episode on Parkinson's, which I promise I will get to, and I will be talking about neurodegenerative diseases as well. But, you know, in looking at the connection with uric acid, I think it's fascinating that maybe we should be treating uh, these diseases with uric acid or some uric acid precursor, trying to raise the serum uric acid level. Do you ever think you would hear that? That you're trying to raise serum uric acid levels in anyone, right? Because again, 
all we hear about with uric acid is how bad it is to the body, right? So what's the deal here? How can it be the good guy and the bad guy at the same time? That's life, isn't it? <laughs> it's always context that's really important. So yes, it's a very potent antioxidant, but actually uric acid itself forms um, a lot of free radicals, can generate a lot of free radicals in itself, right? And as we are forming uric acid, we make some hydrogen peroxide, which is not a free radical, but it's a pro-radical, right? And then as we accumulate more and more uric acid and we have high uric acid levels chronically, then in itself, uric acid becomes, you know, a generator of reactive oxygen species of free radicals. And at that point, it becomes highly inflammatory and damaging. It's almost like this switch, right? At uh, one level and in an acute situation, it's a way to rescue the cell from low energy situations. And it's a way to also buffer against a lot of these free radicals that may be generated in your body. But under you know, chronic um, oxidative stress, and high accumulation of uric acid for long periods of time, the uric acid itself becomes a generator of free radicals and can cause a lot of damage. So there's this delicate balance that needs to be maintained. And one of the ways in which um, we have this kind of turn from the antioxidant effect to the pro-inflammatory effect of um, the uric acid is through the polyol pathway. Remember the polyol pathway? I, I've spoken about it a few times. I talked about it definitely in the fructose episode, in the artificial sweeteners episode, in the advanced glycation um, products episode. So I've mentioned it a few times. Essentially, when you have a lot of accumulation of glucose, then we can convert that glucose to the sugar alcohol sorbitol. And then we can further take that sorbitol and convert it to fructose, right? That's how glucose becomes fructose. And it can go in the opposite direction as well. We can have fructose go to glucose as well. Now, the enzyme that converts the glucose to sorbitol is aldose reductase. And when you have high levels of uric acid accumulate in your blood for a long period of time, what do you do? You upregulate the formation of aldose reductase. So you increase transcription of the aldose reductase gene, and then we make a lot more aldose reductase. And we basically um, start prioritizing that polyol pathway, which, as you know, is a highly inflammatory pathway. Okay, so you see how all of these, you know, metabolic pathways are connected, right? I like to think of it sometimes like, 
you know, Balzac's world. So if you've ever read Balzac, he writes these novels and he has, you know, these characters in them. But in one book, they're the main character. And then when you read another book, it's still in that same world. And, you know, you see the same recurring characters, but it might be a different person who is the main character, right? But the idea is in his books, you see a whole world, you see society from different angles, and you see the connection, right, between these disparate characters and how they make up a whole. And that's how I like to think of the metabolic pathways in our body. It's like this Balzacian world, right? So here we have the uric acid actually stimulating the polyol pathway and causing a lot of damage and inflammation that way as well. So what can I say? I mean, I think that uh, uric acid is fascinating for this reason. And it's maybe a little bit of a lesson because we always assume that, you know, things are black and white, that, okay, in this situation, when you see uric acid, that's always bad. But it's not the case. It turns out that the context is really important. And uric acid can be very helpful, but it can, at the same time, you know, when you push it to the wrong conditions, be very damaging to the body. I would say it's time for our wrap up. Okay, so what do we do? We started with nitrogenous bases and we talked about the purines and the house of pyrimidines, okay? And what did we do then? We basically took, oops, sorry, I turned off an alarm. Uh, we took the purines and we looked at the purines and specifically we were focused on the breakdown of purines or purine catabolism. And we can take the purines AMP and GMP and then run them through their breakdown through IMP to inosine to hypoxanthine to xanthine, eventually to uric acid, which is the end product of purine breakdown in our bodies because we do not possess the uricase gene to further convert that uric acid into that very benign molecule, allantoin. Okay, so we're stuck with uric acid. And it turns out that uric acid has its benefits, which is why that um, the kidneys, while secreting it, will reabsorb 90% of what is secreted because it's trying to keep some uric acid in the bloodstream. It's a very potent antioxidant. It rescues the cell in, t in times of energy or ATP depletion, right? So it helps the cell out in times of hypoxia and oxidative stress. But as an antioxidant, uh, antioxidant, it scavenges a lot of these reactive oxygen species and in the process can form allantoin, even though we don't have that enzyme. That's fast, still fascinating to me, right? And then it's even protective in neurodegenerative diseases such as multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's, we think, and maybe even Alzheimer's, right? And so a lot of research really needs to be done there. But I think many people have considered the use of the um, 
uric acid precursors to try and see if we can improve some of the symptoms for patients suffering from those neurodegenerative diseases. And then we talked about how if we keep up you know, high levels of uric acid in the body over long periods of time, and we have continued oxidative stress in the body that now we can convert a beneficial um, molecule to one that is very damaging because now that uric acid itself can become a generator of free radicals and reactive oxygen species and cause a lot of damage to the body. And one way it can do that also is to really activate and upregulate the polyol pathway and cause more inflammation to the body. So I hope you found that as interesting as I did and that maybe you'll see uric acid in a different light. Certainly, you know, we want to be very careful with uric acid. And in most people with chronic diseases like metabolic syndrome, heart disease, and so forth, you know, we don't want to have high levels of uric acid in the blood. And we certainly don't want to continue with any oxidative stress in those people. But it can be very helpful in cases of um, like the neurodegenerative diseases. So maybe we can exploit uric acid further in those situations. Okay, Mr. Blue, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see all of you hopefully at the next live stream event. Please again, check out the website and also consider supporting this channel by liking subscribing, and maybe sharing this with your friends and family. For now, signing out from VLMD Rounds, I'm Dr. Vivian Lowe, and I sing the body electric. Bye.